The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Happy Easter, everybody. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray that you would show us just more this morning through your word what that means. And I pray that through your word, we would encounter you, meet you, see you. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus, by your spirit. Amen. All right, Shades Valley. We're going to say it one more time. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed on this, the best of days, my favorite day of the year, if you haven't already, I do invite you to turn in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 1. We'll actually be all over the place this morning, but Hebrews 1 is at least where we will get started. So um, when I was a kid, uh, I went on a trip with my parents to Paris, um, Texas, not France, um, which is actually where I was born. I was born in Paris, Texas, but we moved to South Georgia when I was really a little kid. But we went back to visit. I don't remember exactly how old I was. Uh, but we stayed with some of my parents' friends, the Cutrels. Uh, and the Cutrels had three daughters, and one of their daughters, Carol, was my age. And so we struck up this friendship uh, pretty quick. But, but how was that friendship going to continue? How was it going to grow? Carol and I lived many states apart. So we did the only thing you could do in the 80s. We wrote letters, like legit handwritten snail mail, lick a stamp. You still had to lick the stamp. And they, I can taste it right now. Lick the stamp. We, we did all that uh, until about seventh grade. And in seventh grade, I got my first email address, fishguy7 at hotmail.com. <laughs> Don't judge me. Do not ju- None of us used our real names for email addresses. At that time, who was insane enough to put their name on the internet? No one was ever going to do that. Anyway, so we emailed back and forth, and more years go by. Eventually, we both have smartphones. We're able to communicate with one another through apps like Marco Polo. But he- here's the deal. I think, if I'm right, I have seen Carol face-to-face four times in my life. And yet, she is one of my lifelong friends. How? Words. Words. We came to know each other through words. We all come to know one another through words. Like we can generally get ideas about one another when we just see each other. If this is your first time here, you could get some general ideas about me just by looking at me. I probably can't see very well without these things that are sitting on my face. Probably don't miss very many meals. May or may not have got, have, uh, had a, I may or may not have a wife who advised me against also wearing white jeans this morning. <laughs> it's that close. 
you may be able to get a couple of things right about me, but to truly know me, I got to talk. Words are how we reveal ourselves to one another. And over the past several weeks here at Shades Valley, we've seen that the exact same thing is true about God. Like there are some things, just by looking at creation, the world that God made, there are things that you could probably arrive at, general truths about who God is, about his power, his beauty, his love, creation being ordered. But, but to truly know God, he's got to speak, and he has, in, in, in his word. This is actually why we also call Jesus Christ the word made flesh. Because if God reveals himself through words, well, Jesus is the supreme revelation of God. So he is the word, but he's, he's in flesh. He's God revealing himself. Jesus is the supreme way that God has spoken. The supreme way that God has shown us who he is and, and what he's like. That's what Hebrews chapter one says. Look at it with me. Hebrews one, verse one. Long ago, and many times and in many ways, God spoke. He spoke used words to reveal himself. He spoke to our fathers by the prophets. We have those words. They're in this book. He spoke to us through scripture to reveal himself. But in these last days, that's just the Bible's way of talking about the time of Christ onward. All of that is called the last days. In these last days, he has spoken, revealed himself through words. He has spoken by his son, God's revealed himself, made himself known through Jesus Christ. And he can do that, we're told, because Jesus Christ is the heir of all things. Through Jesus Christ, the world was created. We're told Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. In other words, he shows us what God is like because he is God. We're told right here, he upholds, Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, in other words, the cross, after he was crucified, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In other words, after he was crucified, he rose again. The word made flesh. Jesus became the crucified word, dead. And he rose again to forevermore be the living word. This morning, I just want to ask you to ponder with me, what if that's true? Like, I don't know your background. I don't know what you think about this Jesus stuff. It's Easter. Somebody may have forced you to be here. I don't know. You may think this is the craziest stuff you've ever heard. What is this cult-like congregation where people say, Christ is risen, and it's like an automatic response. Everybody says, he is risen. And he, what, what is going on? This is weird. It's going to get weirder, folks. I don't know what you think, what you feel about all of this, but just, just for a moment, I'm asking, ponder with me, what if it's true? What if Jesus really rose? Like, what would that mean if if he really is the living word, what would that reveal? This is the same thing I asked uh, all of you uh, to do six weeks ago. Six weeks ago, the season of Lent began, and throughout the season of Lent, we did uh, a series in which we were looking at this word, the word in ink. 
asking, what do we believe about this word? Why do we believe it? And if you remember, on the very first week, I asked you just to ponder with me, what if this word in ink is true? What if this really is the word of God? What would that mean? And that led us to see this book's reliability, its clarity, its authority, its necessity, its sufficiency. And I think, I think that the resurrection will lead us to see the same things about the word made flesh, Jesus. If the resurrection is true, I think that reveals Jesus' reliability, clarity, authority, necessity, sufficiency. Let's take those one at a time. Just ponder this with me. If the resurrection is true, then see with me, number one, the living word's reliability. The living word's reliability. Jesus, the word, made flesh. He made many claims throughout his life, including that he was God in the flesh. How can anyone test those kinds of claims? I mean, this is not unique to Jesus. Other people have made claims to be divinity or be some kind of Messiah. I, I just finished not that long ago uh, the new Netflix documentary that dropped about Waco. It's called Waco, an American Apocalypse. Anybody else seen this thing? It's, it's about in the early 90s, David Koresh, the Branch Davidians, the, the cult there. David Koresh, if you don't know, he, he thought he was Jesus. He thought he was a Messiah. Like what makes Jesus' claims to be God any different than David Koresh's? Simple. Jesus is alive. Like if Jesus is alive, then his claims are validated. That's what the disciples thought. Throughout Jesus' life, he was making claims that he was not only God in the flesh, but that he would die and he would rise again. We see one such claim in John chapter 2. So get this. In John chapter 2, Jesus comes into the temple in Jerusalem, and inside of the temple, there are money changers. They're selling sacrificial animals. A lot of stuff going on that shouldn't be. So Jesus does what Jesus, meek and mild, peaceable, does what we expect him to do. He makes a whip out of cords, and he chases everybody out. All right? Jesus gets rid of everybody. This ticks just a few people off, and they start asking him, why do you have authority here? This is the temple. We know why priests have authority. Why do you have authority to say what goes on here? Give us a sign that shows, you, shows us your authority. And so Jesus says, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. John 2 and verse 19. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. They all think he's talking about the physical building around them. He's not. He's talking about the temple of his body. Destroy this. Kill me. And here's the sign I'll give you that I have authority over God's temple. I will rise again in three days and show you that I am God. This is my temple. That's what he says. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture, the word that Jesus had spoken, because they know if the resurrection really happens, then Jesus' words are true. The living word, Christ, is reliable. And so is every claim he ever made. If the resurrection is real, then Jesus Christ, the living word, is reliable. Not only that, 
If the resurrection is real, it also helps us see that Jesus, it also helps us see Jesus' claims with clarity, not just that they're reliable. The resurrection actually brings his claims into focus, helps us see exactly what they mean. This is number two. Number two, if the resurrection is real, then see with me the living words clarity. The living words clarity. Jesus claimed to have come in order to save his people from their sin. Sin, what, do we do? what is that? Nice churchy word. Sin, we tend to think of sin as just like the bad stuff we do. Those are sins. Those are symptoms. Those aren't the issue. Sin at its root is rebellion against God. It's a rejection of him. And a substitution of something else or someone else in his place. Most usually myself. So, so sin at its root is me rejecting God in order to be my own God. And here's the deal. If I reject God, what I deserve, rightly, what justice would say, is that I be rejected in return. But the good news of the gospel is that God did not reject us, but took on flesh in order to redeem us. That's what Jesus claimed he was doing through his life and his death. He was taking care of our sin, our rejection, and the rejection we deserve. He was going to take on our sin, take on the rejection that it deserved, take on the death that it deserved, and reconcile us, bring us back to God. How? How was he going to do that? His resurrection makes it clear how he did that. I think we see it most clearly. Okay. I think we see it most clearly. That one fell flat. Sorry about that, y'all. I think we see it in Hebrews 10 and verse 11. Hebrews 10 and verse 11 says, it's talking about the temple and the priest's job in the temple. And it says, every priest stands daily at his service. You go into the temple, lots of different pieces of furniture, altar, laver of water, candelabras, all sorts of stuff. No chairs. No chairs in the temple. Because if the priest is in the temple, he's working. He's making sacrifice. He's standing. There's no need for a priest to sit in the temple. So we're told every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. So if you've been a worshiper coming to the temple in Jerusalem, you'd come bringing your sacrificial animal, something like a lamb, bring it. The priest would make a sacrifice, and symbolically, this animal is your substitute, taking your place. The rejection that I deserved, the lamb receives. My sin, which deserves to be punished in rejection and death, the lamb takes my place. But here's the deal. No animal can actually serve as a substitute for me. No animal can actually serve as a legitimate representative of me. And so, the priests made these same symbolic sacrifices day after day after day. They would stand. Time and time again. But do you know what Christ did after his sacrifice? Hebrews 10, 11, every priest stands daily at a service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down. 
He sat down at the right hand of God the Father. Christ offered himself as our substitute sacrifice. And he rose again and took a seat at the right hand of God the Father, making clear, making clear his sacrifice was complete. There there was no longer any need to stand. No more sacrifices were needed because Jesus did what no animal ever could. He could actually represent you and me, for he was human, just as you and me. But he could also take on your sin and my sin, because not only was he fully human, he was fully God, meaning he had no sin of his own and was free to bear yours and mine. He paid the price for our sin and death and rose again and sat down making clear his work was finished, accomplished. And it is offered to all who trust in him, their faith in him. Treasure him. That's what we see through number three. Number three, if the resurrection is real, then we see the living word's authority. The living word's authority. I I think we can see what I'm getting at right here uh, most uh, poignantly through Thomas. Thomas was one of Jesus' disciples after Jesus had risen from the dead, he appears to all of his disciples. First resurrection party. Thomas wasn't there. And so when Thomas hears about what happened, he does not believe everybody else's story. Would you? I would not. But I would have FOMO for the rest of my life. And Thomas did too, because the next time Jesus shows up, Thomas is there. He's not going anywhere. Just in case this happens again. And so... At this second resurrection party, Thomas beholds Christ. And in the presence of the resurrected Christ, Thomas saw reliably, clearly, Jesus in all of his authority. Causing him to cry out in John 20 and verse 28, my Lord and my God. Jesus invites you to say the same thing. Like, right now, Jesus invites you to believe. And if, if the resurrection is real, then believing in him is necessary. That's the fourth thing we see. Number four, if the resurrection is real, then see the living word's necessity. See the living word's necessity. Necessity. In, in, in other words, if Jesus really rose from the dead, if he really paid the price for my sins, and he's the only one who could do so, fully God, fully man, no one else can represent me and take my sin. If, if he really did that, then he's the only way. The only way to be reconciled to God, brought back into relationship with God. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Faith in Jesus is necessary because he alone could take our place. As fully God and fully man, he alone could reconcile and reconnect God and man. He alone was sufficient to accomplish our salvation. That's the fifth and final thing. And I I think it is the most beautiful thing we see. Namely, if the resurrection is real, then see, number five, the living word's sufficiency. Jesus is 
everything you need. Everything. He says so repeatedly. Just think about in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. In, in, In other words, I am what your soul is hungry for. You got a hungry soul? Can't locate what can satisfy that hunger? Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. I'm what you're hungry for. Like, like everything you want, everything you spend your life seeking to, to satisfy you, to bring some kind of satisfaction, all of those things, they are all pointers to our deepest heart cry, which is for Christ. Jesus is who we are hungry for. Nothing in creation, Shades, will ever satisfy you when you were designed to be satisfied only with the creator himself. Your heart was made to be satisfied with nothing less than the best, and the best is Jesus. Think Think about every desire in the world. Every desire that exists in this world has a corresponding satisfaction. Hunger, food. Desire, corresponding satisfaction. Thirst, drink. Love, relationships. All of our desires have corresponding satisfactions. But here's the deal. All of us know what it is to have an ache in our hearts that it seems like nothing in this world can satisfy. I dare say that's because we have not yet seen its corresponding satisfaction. It's Christ. Christ, Jesus is what our hearts are hungry for. We have such a hard time seeing that because we live in such a dark world, which is why he says in the Gospel of John, not only is he the bread of life, but in John chapter 8, he says, I'm the light of the world. The light of the world. He's the light that makes sense of life. In John chapter 10, he says, I am the door. In other words, I am the way into true life. And not just the one that leads you into true life, but guides you through it. Because in John chapter 10, he also says, I am the good shepherd. I'll shepherd you all the way through life, even all the way through death itself. For in John chapter 11, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus is everything we need to enter into true life, to live it, to finish it, and be satisfied forever. Christ, the living word, is our living hope. Everything we need. 1 Peter 3 and verse 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Everything else you seek satisfaction in in this life will fade. Through the resurrection of Christ, he has secured for you an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, for he has secured for you himself as your joy forever. Jesus is everything we need. He is our sufficiency. Do you believe? 
beloved, if the resurrection is real, then ju- just, just ponder for a moment. If Jesus is the living word, do you see his reliability, clarity, authority, necessity? Do you see the good news of his sufficiency? In, in January of the year 2000, I found myself, it's 23 years ago, I found myself face down on my bedroom floor, weeping. Uh, I was battling the first significant season of depression I'd ever faced in my life. Depression's the largest battle of my life. And at the time, like, I didn't have that word for it. I didn't know what was going on. And I didn't know what I needed. I knew that in that moment, I didn't need a word from my mom or dad. They tried to give words of encouragement. None of it seemed to help. I didn't need a word from a mentor or a friend. I didn't even need a word from my pen pal I told you about, Carol Cutrell, letter wouldn't have helped. Because Shades, I needed the word. I needed Christ. And on that floor, 23 years ago, for the first time since I had been depressed, I cried out to God. And my prayer was simple. I'll never forget it because it was so simple. I said, Lord, change me or kill me because this sucks. And I can't do it. And beloved, the resurrected Christ showed up. Like, I can't explain it. I I don't know how or why or exactly what happened. All, All I know is that my entire life changed. Shades, I believe, I believe the resurrection is real because I believe I have met the resurrected one, the reliable, clear, authoritative, necessary, and sufficient Christ. I believe he is the living word. Do you? You are invited to. Right now, you are invited to come to this table and and to confess, to, to believe Christ is the living word. When we come to this table, we take the bread, the body of Christ broken for us. We dip it in the cup, and we take those elements, the cup, the blood of Christ spilled for us. This is an expression of faith. It's It's a confession. I believe in the Christ who died and that he rose. And more than any bread or any drink could satisfy my hunger or thirst, I believe that Christ is the one 
that satisfies my soul forever. And we believe something crazy. I told you it was going to get weirder. We believe that when we come to this table, we're not just confessing that, but that we are actually communing with Christ. That he's here. You're invited to his table to commune, to feast with him. Because he's not dead. He's alive and he's here.